0: Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life, so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your Audie HD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Today's episode about autism quote levels and monotropism was both inspired by last week's episode with William Kerb and is the third and final official episode about monotropism in this little series. Yes, I'll definitely keep talking about monotropism because it's an incredibly useful model, but this is the episode I had in mind when I asked folks in Like Your Brain about their experiences with it so here it is. To keep the episode from feeling disjointed, I'm going to say right away what connects all the following topics in my mind. One, autism levels are used diagnostically at the moment to loosely replace functioning labels, which are widely considered offensive in the community. Two, Will talked last week about his, quote, subclinical autism diagnosis, and we briefly touched on what that might even mean with a pervasive neurodevelopmental issue. In other words, did you develop an autistic brain or not? And three, monotropism explains the gaps in the current medical slash clinical understanding of autism. And I'm going to go a step further to talk about why it explains the ADHD experience in particular so well. I've talked a bit on the podcast before about the problem with the current autism quote levels and how they don't really reflect our lived reality, They make more sense to me as capacity to mask labels, (laughs) and I love the community term of high masking instead of talking about levels or functioning labels. According to the current three levels of autism, I would be considered level one because I'm sort of able to keep a job going and I'm not always immediately visibly clocked as autistic in public. That's not how they put it, (laughs) but that's in part what the levels are about. It's very clearly about masking. In my daily lived experience, when I read about the levels, I actually think I'd be level two with some higher support needs. The problem with the way the levels are talked about and applied is that they're not really acknowledging the difference between being okay and seeming okay. If I'm not taking care of myself, and I'm holding so much physical tension that it's causing me constant pain, and I'm so anxious that it's making me want to stay in bed forever or just die, because I can internalize that and not make it visible doesn't mean I'm functioning well. And that was my life for a lot of adulthood when not living with a partner. I'd like to think at the moment that if a partner wasn't feeding me, I'd still eat well because it is true that ADHD meds are helping enormously on the being able to take care of myself front. But while my emotional regulation skills are the best they've ever been, it's really, really easy for me to ignore basic bodily needs for a lot of reasons. This brings me to my first study of this episode, which a therapist I follow on TikTok walked through. I don't have the link, but I bet you could look it up based on what I describe. It was basically about daily functioning skills in autistic folks. Content note, it will be talking about IQ for the next little bit, which I know is terrible and rooted in all kinds of awful things, but it's impossible to talk about the study without it. They were plotting daily functioning tasks and skills against IQ, assuming that it would rise together, but it doesn't. The higher the IQ went, the bigger the gap between that and the daily functioning ability, which after a point was staying pretty static. Again, IQ is terrible, I'm sorry, but I do think it's useful to notice the gap here between what society assumes and what we actually experience in daily life. Pretty much everyone around you is going to assume that if you have any skills or talents, that it tracks with an ability to get basic stuff done. And some research is indicating That's just not true for autistic folks. One of the things Will said last week is that if you're consistently finding yourself wondering why basic life is so hard, you should probably do an autism screening or look into it. I think this is exactly why those basic life tasks are not easy for us for a variety of reasons. I'm a speaking autistic person without an intellectual disability. And while I do have motor differences, I'm still generally able to get my body to move and speak in the way that I expect most of the time. There are many autistic people whose body just won't take instructions like that, who can't mask, or who experience more pervasive sensory distress. I'm not suggesting that labeling this wide variety of experiences is a bad thing. It can be useful for some people. And I'm simultaneously not at all trying to distance myself from other presentations of autism, while also acknowledging that I only have my own lived experience and I'm not speaking for anyone else. My mini conclusion here is that in my opinion, the autism levels currently used are really about how well you can mask, not about how well you're actually living day to day. And it's certainly not centering our mental health or lived experience. Because when I was living with all that tension and anxiety, it was so pervasive that I often couldn't even tell it was happening. It was only once I started to feel better that I realized how tense I'd been. And no one ever tried to find a deeper explanation for it until something like my 25th mental health professional. Moving on to the idea of subclinical autism, which Will talked about last week, here's what they were told by the autism assessor. I'm paraphrasing here. You have autistic traits and symptoms, but we can't tell for sure if they stem from autism or something else, like anxiety. Thus, the subclinical autism label. There are so many issues here my brain is screaming about. Even just the term symptoms is already implying the medical model. There's the assumption that something like anxiety could cause autistic symptoms rather than the much more common, obvious correlation in the opposite direction, In other words, autistic people are often anxious for all kinds of external reasons. The biggest issue here for me is that the assessment is not based on anything internal, but rather verbal reports of how intensely this is affecting your life and the people around you. We're not looking at the brain, even though we know from postmortem brains that autistic brains are different across every sector of the brain. We know there's more neuronal activity and less neuronal pruning, We know synesthesia is much more common, which can freak people out if they don't know what's happening. There are so many questions not asked in autism assessment that would be really useful. My concern about not looking at the internal structure, and again, I don't know if that's even possible at this point, or if it would be used well, even if it were possible, is that autism is neurodevelopmental. It's about how the brain develops. We have different brains. I truly don't know what it would mean to subclinically have a totally different brain. There was another study from the last few years that was looking at autistic brains and identified four potential subtypes of autism based on that. They included development of specific brain areas correlated with the external presentation, such as having better or worse social skills or higher or lower verbal acuity. It was already known that many autistic people tend to be at one extreme or the other with verbal acuity. So I found this subtype breakdown, especially interesting, especially because it was looking at actual brain scans. In that study, the subtype I would probably be put under based on the external presentation, they haven't looked at my brain, would also be the subtype least likely to be diagnosed. Again, I think it comes back to masking. If over the course of your life, you've manage not to irritate people too much and if you've managed to hit some adult milestones such as school or relationship or work you've probably been masking enough for the medical model to be skeptical but it wouldn't change that fundamental sense of brain differences and it might even increase that feeling of why is everything so hard for me that sense of everything being easy for others and hard for me was especially intense for me in the few years after college I truly couldn't wrap my mind around how people were working jobs. And it's ironic to me that I'm still considered high masking when for most of my adult life, I've been too disabled to work full time. One of the rare times when I was trying to, I got my worst concussion I've ever had and ended up cutting back hours. Different story for another day, but fascinating in retrospect that When I've been trying to do too much, I've often gotten an injury or illness that has put me back to the number of hours I could actually handle. So throughout all of that, I had such an intense feeling that my friends were moving past me on pretty much every metric, especially when it came to work. Meanwhile, I was deeply struggling with basics like food and showering. One point I'd like to interject here is that you don't have to master those basics in order to do cool, big, creative brain stuff. I felt like, because of societal messages, I had to dial in food and household stuff and then I'd have the foundation to create. There's probably some minimum there that does have to happen, like obviously we need nutrients and hydration and such, but you're completely free to do interesting hard things that are fun to you and motivating to you and let some of the daily stuff slide. For example, If you do a deep dive into the skin microbiome, you'll learn that we really don't need to shower as much as soap companies say we do. So there's this big gap in the medical model that simply doesn't explain all of the autistic experience, let alone the ADHD experience. Monotropism explains those gaps, in my opinion, especially when it comes to ADHD. Just in case you haven't yet heard episodes 34 and 35 talking about monotropism, here's a description from monotropism.org run by Fergus Murray, which in turn is from AutisticRealms.com, this particular little uh, image quote thing. What is monotropism? Monotropism is a neurodiversity-affirming theory of autism. Autistic ADHD slash ADHD people are more likely to be monotropic. Monotropic people have an interest-based nervous system. This means they focus more of their attentional resources on fewer things at any one time compared to other people who may be polytropic. Things outside an attention tunnel may get missed, and moving between attention tunnels can be difficult and take a lot of energy. Monotropism can have a positive and negative impact on sensory, social, and communication needs depending on the environment, support provided, and how a person manages their mind and body. In the show notes, there's a link to this page, which also includes an accessible four-minute animation introduction to the key ideas. In what studies have been done so far, it appears that ADHD brains are the most monotropic. I get an almost perfect score on the long monotropism questionnaire, also linked in the show notes. What monotropism fills in for me that the medical model doesn't comes back to this question of why is everyday life so hard? All of the little things that in theory I should be able to figure out or create a system around, but I simply can't muster caring enough about it to actually do it or I do care, but it just feels impossible. Monotropism explains autistic inertia in both directions, feeling stuck and feeling like a little top that can't stop. Monotropism explains why my ADHD brain feels such delight when I give it as long as it wants to do something or let it go down an internet research rabbit hole the moment something is interesting. It explains why it's so hard to say no to something interesting and how saying no and trying to be responsible feels like I'm wrestling my inner child. Except it's not just my inner child because I don't want that to sound infantilizing. It's huge swaths of me that don't wanna be tied down by anything and wanna just follow what's fun and interesting all the time. That can absolutely include mastery and large projects, including the boring parts of the projects, because I can get so monotropically focused on an end goal that I can rally around even the boring stuff as part of the larger goal. There's a big shadow side to that as well, because I can get into a real workaholic style mode where I'll push through and ignore bodily needs until I start getting some really weird symptoms. For example, I once composed so much for a few days leading up to a deadline that my mouth tasted like black pepper for almost a full day after. I kept thinking there was a peppercorn in my teeth, but there wasn't. It was just a weird combo of lack of sleep, brain chemicals from flow, and a touch of synesthesia tendencies that for me aren't automatically there all the time, but can come up like that. ADHD is usually framed in terms of lack of attention, even though we know we can get really absorbed in things that interest us. Monotropism for me explains how I can get hyper-focused sometimes, even when the thing isn't interesting inherently, because I'm so monotropic that other types of things can trigger it such as a strong, anxious desire to get something off my plate so I can have fewer total demands or obligations. And oops, that actually reminds me I finished something for someone and then forgot to send it to them. In other words, my brain said task complete, but it's actually not because I need to send it. I'm going to do that right now, actually. Okay, I'm back. So ADHD people being hella monotropic indicates to me that there really is something else going on besides just adding together ADHD plus autism. It's not just the quote symptoms and traits of these two quote disorders. It's a different way of experiencing the world, very likely through a neurodevelopmentally different brain. I don't so much care about us getting our own separate term or anything. Like I actually love the existence of spectrums. After all, I'm non-binary. I am not a part of your system, <laughs> but there does feel like there's something rich and novel here around this idea that being extraordinarily monotropic is a very different way of experiencing life and really does give us a unique set of chills, skills, and challenges <laughs> and chills. One of the reason those challenges are hard to meet is that they're so far from the paradigm, at least that I'm living in. Monotropism also pulls us outside of that entire medical model of levels and functioning and explicitly acknowledges that it can have both, quote, a positive and negative impact on sensory, social, and communication needs, depending on the environment supports provided and how a person manages their mind and body. While that small description doesn't mention masking, it's part of that whole picture of how a person manages their own mind and body. Another element I want to point out around masking and how we're perceived is that our ability to emotionally regulate is a huge part of it. If our self-soothing behavior is visible and shitty ableist society doesn't like it, we're a lot more likely to be labeled as having some kind of disorder. Monotropism can explain so much about our experience. Here's one comment from a Like Your Brain member. Monotropism is incredibly powerful in describing how I experience the world. Fergus's six starting points for understanding autism is the most succinct way to communicate the differences between me and people around me. It shows up in my life in so many ways, big and small. Recently, the way that this has been most obvious to me has come from having a second child. I have a one and a four-year-old. Before my one-year-old was born, having a kid was a lot of work, but manageable. Once my second came around, I discovered that it is extremely stressful for me to care for both of them at once. My attention is being torn from one to the other constantly and so often I worry that I'm going to be focused on the wrong one at the wrong time. It's getting easier as they get older but it will be a long time before I'm able to feel relaxed when I have both of them around. The same thing applies for the larger work of helping to manage their lives, doctor appointments, daycare, etc. Okay, back to me talking. I'll link to Fergus Murray's article mentioned above and here are the six points from that article for overview. One, one, Coping with multiple channels is hard. Two, filtering is tricky and error-prone. Three, changing tracks is destabilizing. Four, I often experience things intensely. Five, I keep looping back to my interests and concerns. Six, other things that drop out of my awareness tend to stay dropped. Ryan's comment above also resonates so much for me, even though I don't have kids. I was especially struck by how similar my parents probably felt As an ADHD and ADHD couple who had six kids in eight years, I can only imagine the amount of task switching required and they had me when they were 24 and neither had processed any of their own trauma. Yikes. That feeling that I'm going to focus on the wrong thing at the wrong time is still pretty much a daily part of my experience, especially when I'm doing boring household or body maintenance tasks. It's a lot less likely to come up when I'm focused on work I love, though it's one of my brain's go-to's during overwhelm. Whenever I start to feel like there's too much going on or too many choices to be made, it's a go-to for my brain to start worrying that I'm focusing on the wrong thing or going to miss something important. I love being able to see that through the frame of monotropism rather than as just anxiety that I can learn to get rid of. Yes, I've actively done some self-soothing around the idea that it's safe to do the wrong thing or that I'm moving in the right direction, etc. But it's not just anxiety. It's my monotropic brain expressing overwhelm with too many inputs or choices. In an ideal world, I probably would be working on one project at a time until it's done, with help at the beginning and end, for the hardest inertia points. That's not how I've set my life up currently. (laughs) The more I've understood and leaned into monotropism... Rather than viewing any of my neurodivergences as a set of symptoms and traits, the more I've been able to design a life that really works for me. I'm recording this episode on day two of two of batching podcast episodes for basically the first time. Yesterday, I spent my entire workday on podcasts and I felt so freaking good and energized at the end of the workday. In most of my life so far, I've only let myself spend two days on a project because of deadline anxiety. This was in part because my understanding of ADHD was that I needed variety. But now understanding my extreme monotropic ADHD, I know that it's both okay to do those long stretches and it's okay to let myself have zoomy golden retriever days where I follow my interest and don't try to force myself to complete tasks. They're both a part of my experience. So as a quick example overview of how this might look for various levels of natural monotropism, A somewhat monotropic person, and this lines up with having ADHD, might enjoy working on a podcast whenever the interest is there, and this more or less is how I've been doing it. A more monotropic person, and this lines up with being autistic, might create systems around how to get this done more efficiently, for example, doing all the writing at once and then all the recording at once, which I acknowledge is more efficient. An extremely monotropic person, and this lines up with ADHD, might enjoy what I'm doing right now, which is not only two full days for working on the podcast, but I'm doing it episode by episode so that when one is done, it's done and it's off the demand plate. It also means that even if I end up stopping early or if an episode takes a lot longer than I'm expecting, which happens all the time, I've still reached a point of completion that helps my extremely monotropic brain feel like I've removed demands and obligations from my total upcoming tasks. It's not about individual tasks, it's about moving along project pieces to completion so they're not hanging over me. That's all, of course, just an example, and I've done all of those things, but what I've realized recently is that letting myself take long chunks of time and gearing toward completion rather than pure autistic efficiency is helping my extreme monotropic tendencies. When I was trying to create efficient systems, what I found was that I still felt stuck or that letting myself take longer on one portion would throw everything off and then it all felt ruined and useless. I was wasting a lot of time making systems instead of allowing for this spacious completion time. Another part of this is how, for a variety of reasons, we might need more time around tasks. To reference episode 35 about how we might need more space around completing projects, I'm trying to think about building in more intentional off time that isn't just weekends especially because while my ovaries aren't doing too much, they are technically still there. My histo took everything else. And that means that when I'm not on testosterone, which I'm not right now, I'm on that longer cyclical energy phase. Again, it's not as pronounced as it was when I had full estrogen projection, but it's important to know that depending on your body's hormone situation, and especially if you have PMDD, you might have a couple days a month where the ADHD side is super, super strong. And that's, not just going to conveniently line up with your days off of work most of the time. So now that I'm back to that more or less 28 day energy cycle, I'm thinking again about how can I work with that instead of fighting against it? Conveniently, I do notice it lining up with moon phases, so that makes it easier to track for me. This isn't the point of the episode by any means, but like I said, it all fits together because it's about all the elements of our actual daily experience that are totally ignored by the medical model. This is so individual and there are so many complex factors that go into what works for each ADHD person. That's why this podcast isn't about prescriptive ideas that you must try, rather a bunch of examples of what might work, what terms to research for yourself, etc. The experimental model is great for finding what works for you rather than trying to mold yourself to fit into someone else's model. It's okay if this all feels really complicated to figure out, it literally is complex. It involves every area of our life. Our brains are literally wired differently. That also means that a lot of the standard psychological research might not directly apply to us. Of course, it's not quite as far away as trying to apply mouse research to humans, but it is something I keep in mind when reading mainstream psych research. It's not delineating clearly between neurotypes, and even when it is, it's often not doing so correctly or in a useful way. There's no clear roadmap out there for extremely monotropic people or ADHD people, which is probably good because we wouldn't want to follow it anyway. What I'm working to build out with my materials in this period of my life is a set of useful tools and ideas that you can use to construct what works for you. By definition, not everything is going to apply to you, and that's okay. Please trust your innate wisdom when your body or brain says, no, that's not for me. That's actually a great thing that saves you time and energy. When something is for you, or if you find a tool that works for you, I think it's worth making some expansive time to explore it. That might look like researching. That might look like experimenting. That might look like external processing to figure out how to apply it. It might look like asking for help. It might look like writing a note about it and then losing that note for months and then finding it again when you have the energy to actually explore. That is me, by the way. There's no right or wrong way to approach figuring out your neurotype and what works for you. There are links in the show notes for further reading if you want to learn more about monotropism. And for folks in Like Your Brain Who Missed It, our conversation on February 20th was about monotropism and attention. And that recording is both in the Patreon and in your RSS feed if you've set that up. And hit me up if you need any tech help setting that up. I'm always trying to make it easier. Thanks for being here. You're doing a great job, even if it feels like you're constantly failing and everything is really hard. You're doing a great job because you're still moving forward and rest is included in that and taking care of yourself, even though basic life stuff is hard. And just because your growth and what's hard for you often is not recognized by the people around you doesn't mean it's not happening. If you want to feel seen and heard and validated on any of those fronts, we'd love to have you in Like Your Brain, where you can feel like your lived experience makes sense and get some of that practical day-to-day support. You're awesome, and you deserve to be seen and cared for. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. If you would enjoy gentle, ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's primarily a non-hierarchical space to feel seen, heard, and validated in our daily lived experiences. Thank you, Mouse, for letting me quote you. I've only been here since yesterday and I've never felt as understood as I do here. Members have also shared that they feel more hopeful about the future and that they feel better after sharing and being heard. Come hang out with people who really get you. Advice and teaching content are available and totally optional. It is currently my personal favorite place on the internet. Take your time. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash Mattia.